All right. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll keep going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians here. So, we're quite thankful for the people after the canon was assembled that went through and put in chapter and verse for us. But in 2 Corinthians 5, it's a little bit of an unfortunate break in the chapters. And so we're going to actually read a bit from where we've already covered in chapter 4 to get into chapter 5 for the sake of the context and to kind of understand what he's talking about. So if you don't mind, let's start in chapter 4 and verse 7. It's a bit of a chunk, but you guys are smart folks, so we'll be able to take it in. Says there in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure? It's the treasure of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ, knowing who God is through seeing Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay, our earthen bodies, to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow in the glory of God. Excuse me, to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For since what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands." Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead of our excuse me, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, will we not we will not be found naked, for while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now as we've been talking about in these last few weeks and months, uh, we're not going to rehash it all, but in chapter 4, Paul's talking about this incredible ministry of the New Covenant. He's talking about how he and, and, and Timothy and Silas at this point, but all of us can, can look into this, how we have this ministry, we have this service that we get to contribute to what God is doing. 
And this ministry and this service is accomplished in these earthen vessels. There's a bunch of different ways he talks about earthly bodies. He says bodies. He says uh, jars of clay or earthen vessels. He says tent. Um, and as a matter of fact, this is uh, the, the word tent there is also the same word that Jesus uh, or used to refer to Jesus in John 1. So in John 1.14, where we're told that, that the, the word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is the same word. It's tent. It literally would be that, that Jesus tented among us. So he's, there's a link between the body that Jesus had and our had. It's a natural body, a body that's created from flesh and bone, right? So as he's going through the difficulties of being someone who's interested in being involved in what God is doing, and he talks about the being perplexed. He talks about being, uh, but not being crushed and not being in despair, persecuted but not abandoned. So he's, he's talking about these things that are happening in our mortal bodies, in our lives. Then he three times, and we talk about this in detail, but just by brief uh, uh, remembrance, three times he says, that gives us concept that we bear in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested. And this is, in a sense, a spiritual sense that just as Christ died for sin, right, that he paid his blood for sin, was judged by God for our sin, and then rose again from the dead, right, in the same way since he died and rose, when we trusted by faith, Romans 6 would tell us, when we said, yes, I need that forgiveness, that we, the scripture says there in Romans 6, died with him. We died with Christ. And if we died with Christ by faith, then we also live in Christ, it says by Christ, in Christ, through Christ, that we have a spiritual life now in Jesus. So by the fact that he conquered death and sin, we get, if you will, to piggyback that. And when we, by faith, say, yes, I need this forgiveness, what that means for us is that we die with him and that now we live with him in his victory over sin. That's this new life that we have, right? So Paul, in, his, in, in a ministry sense, is saying, look, Part of our daily life in these mortal bodies is to kind of uh, put aside or not respond to our mortality, our fallen nature in body and in soul. So he says that we have to lay aside our things. We have to embrace, if you will, or live in the death of Jesus. And the example we used was the idea that if I'm going to get coffee and someone cuts in front of me here at the church or wherever it might be, and, if, and, I, and I get frustrated. Maybe I get frustrated with it. Maybe you don't, maybe you do, whatever. It's just an example. But you get frustrated with someone cutting in front of you for coffee. If you don't, if you don't live the death of Jesus in that moment, and you shoulder tap someone, and you say, hey, what are you doing? I was here first. I want my coffee. Is that dying the death of Jesus, who died for sin, who allowed himself to be crucified so that others might live? No. That would be living my life. Right? That would be me asserting myself in a situation to get what I want. It's the antichrist kind of attitude, right? So what we do is we go, oh, you know what? That person can have the coffee. It's fine. And if I'm angry, I can repent and turn and say, you know what? That's not from you. That wrath isn't from you. Lord, I just, I'm not going to do that. All of a sudden, I'm burying in my body the death of Jesus. And instead, I say, how are you doing today? Is it, is it a nice day today? Can I pray for you? I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, you don't necessarily walk up to everybody and say that, but you could. But all of a sudden, the death of Jesus now manifests his life to others, right? So it's a very simple idea, somewhat simple idea that Paul is communicating here. 
So it's all in this mortal body. This, there's this exchange of, of natures and not living according to this old nature that tempts us and draws us. He talks about the faith, and he quotes the Psalms there. That, and that's why they speak. That's why they have this boldness. He talks about the fact that everything that we have in this ministry is all based on the knowledge and the glory that God has given us in the face of Christ that we get to, that we get to, to talk about. But in the, the whole context that we, as we get into five is suffering, difficulty, but also victory and knowledge of Christ, right? So then when he picks up in, in 18, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, So we fix not our eyes on what is seen, the mortal, the temporal, right? The, the, the humanity, in a, in a sense, the, the temporal humanity. We don't focus on what is seen. We focus on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the, the, as we get into chapter 5, he's talking about the temporality of this life, of this body, of this ministry, all these things. Verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, We know. Now, what do we know? Well, we know is a reference back to 2.14, because we know, I'm sorry, 4.14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So he's, he's basing this all on these factual doctrinal things that we know through the scriptures and through experience. We know that if our, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So the first thing that he's going to point out about these new bodies or this destiny that we have as believers, the first thing he's going to point out is, number one, he calls this an earthly tent. Now, a tent is temporary, right? It's, it's transitional. It's you, you, if you have a tent, you don't typically live somewhere for years and years and years. You could, uh, but it's, it's the idea of a temporal structure, right? So he refers to the earthly body as a tent. Something's temporal, and it's, it's not exactly stable typically, uh, you know, and whatnot. But then... When he, go, when he continues, he says, if this tent is destroyed, so if we die or we're raptured or whatever it might be, if it's destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. Now, it's interesting because tent, building, and house are three different words in Greek. So he refers to, again, our bodies, our temporal, mortal bodies, as tents. But then he says the heavenly body or this existence that we will have in heaven with a different body, that that is a building, and the word there's like an edifice, something of a great structure, something of integrity. Does that make sense? So these bodies are passing away, right? These bodies are temporal, and they last for, on average right now, 80 years, and then they go away, right? And so he's, they're, they're a tent. But he's pointing to the structural integrity, if you will, and not to try to cheapen it, of the eternal body, what we're going to. Because the big comparison that we're looking at is mortality versus immortality, Right? Death versus life, temporal versus eternal. These are the two concepts that we're wrestling through in different venues, if you will. So he says, this new body that you're going to get, it's an edifice. It's an incredible structure. But not only is it like clinical uh, or uh, you know, just strong and steel, cold and whatever, but he says it's a house that's in heaven. So you get these two aspects that Paul talks about with these new bodies. Number one is that it's incredible integrity and incredibly built, and it's eternal. And the other one is that it's a house, it's dwelt. When you think of what a house is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a home, right? 
And what is home supposed to be? Most people, uh, typically, when you think of a home, you don't think of like an empty room and there's like a chair and a table, right? That's like a bachelor pad. That's not a place of welcome and fun. So when you think of a home, what do you think of? You think of couches. Uh, typically, there's people there, right? You have hopefully like a fruit bowl or something. You know what I mean? Like everything that women bring to a house. It's, it's, it's a home, right? That's what a home is supposed to be, a place of fellowship. Right? You have people over. You help them. You, 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 you cater to them. You bless them. Or you get to go to someone else's house, and they do that for you. So he, the, the, the two ideas that Paul is communicating is that, one, it's incredibly built, but it's not isolated. It's not just like a steel frame. It's a home. So why does that matter? Because heaven is not going to be clinical. It's not going to be just us isolated on our you know, heavenly ranches or whatever, or clouds with harps or all the different imagery that gets put before us. If you read carefully throughout Scripture, the imagery of heaven is home. It's a home. And, and there, but it's, it's vast, obviously, but it's fellowship. It's, it's caring. It says that we'll know as we are known. So in the same way that Christ knows us, we'll know him and one another. It'll be the intimacy that all of us have always desired, platonic intimacy that we've always desired, but it'll be on a corporate level that you'll finally be with people. If you think about it, and you go back to Adam and Eve, the, one of the points of Adam and Eve is that it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. Now, obviously, there's the lack of clothing there, and that's fine, and the innocence of that. But the real, I think the real point of that is they had nothing to hide from God and from one another. They never tried to hide something. They weren't ashamed of their bodies. They weren't worried about their bodies. They weren't ashamed of their souls. Until what? Until sin came in. Sin brought shame, right? They hide. So you can see whether it's you know, dialogue between the prophets and, and, the old, and Israel, whether it's New Testament writings, whether, no matter what it is, God always has this same goal with humans, and it's fellowship. It's home. It's what he wants. It's what they had. They literally just hung out with God, talked to him, went, went for walks with him, and did botany. And they could eat from whatever tree they wanted to. That doesn't sound isolated. It doesn't sound cold. It doesn't sound anything like that. It sounds like rich, satisfying, gratifying fellowship. So that's, we, we're designed for that. So Paul's making a point here. Rather than in these where we get perplexed, and we might wrestle with despair, or we get persecuted, or we get struck down. All the things that happen, happen in this mortality, Paul's making the case that like, the next body is completely different, and the next place that that body was designed for. Right? This body is designed for this earth. Not this heat, but this earth. Right? <laughs> it's designed to, to eat what this earth provides. It's designed to procreate, to make more humans for God's purpose. It's designed to enjoy the... Uh, 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 poetry, it's designed to enjoy a sunset, it's designed to enjoy uh, you know, a movie, it's designed to enjoy and to use what we have here, right? But it is corrupt and it's fading away. And Paul is saying this next body, it's not like that. From there, he says this, verse 2, meanwhile we groan. So he's, ta he's, he's talked about struggle, he's talked about difficulties, he's talked about all these things. And so he's, he's referring now and kind of summarizing and saying, meanwhile, we groan. He's already talked about the meanwhile, right? And now he's just referencing back to it. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed uh, instead with our heavenly dwelling. 
So it's a simple statement that our heavenly dwelling, this building, this house, this new body that we're to receive in Christ, he says, we long for it. We groan in this body. And it's not just like I'm getting older and so therefore I can't run as fast or something like that. It's much more than that. It's what we experience in the body, but it's what we experience out of the body. It's what we experience in this world, not out-of-body experiences, but in a sense, things that happen around us. And he says, we long for that. Now, he's not making a case for like suicidal or something like that. He's making the case and in, in, in saying that we have this ministry of which we communicate the glory of God in our earthen vessels through the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did, and yet we have struggles in that. And it will be better eventually when this ministry and this body is over and this world is done to be with him. And so we look forward to that. He goes on from there and he says this in verse 3. He says, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. I'm not going to take too much time for this. There's different ideas about this. And there's been like whole doctrines uh, that are made up and they kind of make this interim. Because it is a bit of a mystery to me. There might be somebody out there who knows positively. I don't. Of the, of the new body. Because there are some verses that talk about the fact that we, the, those who die before us will not precede us and then we'll meet them in the air and different verses about the rapture and things like that. I don't necessarily want to get all tied up in that today. But what I, what it, the, the point that Paul seems to be making is not that there's a third category that you, if you're, you're in the, the mortal and then if you're raptured, you just receive a new body. But if you die, then you're kind of disembodied and kind of waiting to get your new body. I personally don't believe that. If you believe that, we can still be friends. But I don't personally believe that. I believe that a person receives their new body upon death, once they pass from this life to the next. And I think the rest of the text will support it. I also think that trying to take one little phrase, that we want to be clothed so that we're not naked, doesn't mean that we have no body if we die. I think he's merely stating the reality that every person desires to be clothed. We want wholeness. We want completeness. We want fulfillment. It's what we want. And so Paul's just making the point about the new body, because that's the context, right? It's what he talked about right beforehand, that instead of being, in a sense, naked or this, having this old body, we long for this new body. We long for that kind of quality of clothing, if you will, in the metaphor. So he goes on from there, and he says this, verse 4, for while we were in this tent, again, this body, we groan and are burdened, and the idea of burdened, heavy weights, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead of our heavenly, instead with our heavenly dwelling. This is why I think verse three is not a reference to some middle ground in which we are disembodied until Jesus comes, or that Paul is somehow afraid that he might die before the uh, the rapture. I don't, that, that just seems like an incredible amount of inference to me. But I think what he's saying here is this. He's just making the point that we have this longing. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be completed. But we want to be completed with our heavenly dwelling. And this is the key. So that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And it's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Because he doesn't say so that mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. He says so that mortality will be, will be swallowed up or be replaced with life. And it's, a, it's just some incredible imagery there, isn't it? Because immortality, at least to me, and I'm not trying to make a mountain out of molehill here, but immortality is just life forever, right? Immortality can describe anything. 
In fact, in a sense, everyone who is separated from God eternally will be immortal, right? So it's not just mortality and immortality. It's mortality and life, the two differences there. Because everything that is mortal is temporal and passing away. It has no value in the next life. Now, what was done here, that has value. But, it, but, but what is mortal is considered temporary and transitory, and it, does, and it doesn't go into eternity. It can't live in eternity. This body couldn't be there in any kind of capacity. I mean, you have a couple times where evidently, uh, well, one time where Paul says he was caught up on the Lord's day. But he says he was out of his body. He was a spiritual experience that he has. So this body cannot and is not designed to exist in heaven. Instead, there's this new body. And this new body is described completely different in that it, it is life. And I think that you and I experience that. Like, we could talk about that. In, in, in the sense of, for example, in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of man so that he can never basically figure out from the beginning to the end all that God has done. So there's this interesting idea that's set forth for us in, in Ecclesiastes, which is generally about the... Uh, inaneness and the pointlessness of life outside of God, there's this idea that we have eternity inside of us. And eternity inside of us is why you and I are never satisfied on this earth. The, the, I would say that, the, in, in, unfortunately, speaking for myself, even as a Christian, uh, that many times, maybe all the time for all unbelievers, but maybe a lot of the time for some of us believers, that we spend our life trying to be satisfied. We spend our life trying to feel fulfilled. And I think this is part of this is because there's a lack of discipleship oftentimes in a life. And that's not a blame statement or an angry statement. But a lot of times what happens is Christians, we get saved. And it's like, hey, congratulations, you're saved. And then we have a baptism, you get baptized. It's like, hey, God bless you. And you're just kind of left to like float around Christianity. And then, and then there's, there's like, I don't know what you call them, like, little taglines, like, just make sure you're in church every time the doors are open. Keep a short account. You know, all these little taglines that get thrown out there. When in reality, we need to know how to walk with Jesus. So for many of us that were never taught that or didn't want to be taught that or whatever and everything in between, we get saved and we know that we have Christ and occasionally we hear the Holy Spirit, but we're not super interested in following him. Because we're afraid of the cost, or it just doesn't seem always appealing to us. You know, C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He says, uh, he says we're like little children that were, in, it's the beginning of his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says we're like little children and we're playing with mud pies. You ever seen a kid play with mud pies? I was actually a freakishly weird, freak, freakishly weird kid. I hated mud and grass. So I never made mud pies, but it was not for righteousness' sake. It was just like, I don't know, I didn't like being sticky or something. But I've observed mud pies being made, right? And for many of us, we made mud pies or whatever, sandcastles, fill in the blank. And he, so C.S. Lewis, he makes the point, he says, many of us as believers, we're like little children. When we're in the mud, we're making mud pies, and our parents come to us, and he's English, and he says, our parents come to us, and they say, hey, we want to take a holiday at sea, go on a cruise, and, and as children, because a cruise is outside of our experience, we've, we've never experienced it. We don't, we're like, oh, okay, there's something to do with the ocean. There's like a boat. You know, but but I, I can't relate to that idea. I've never been involved with that idea. I can't really comprehend that idea. 
because that's oftentimes what heaven or even Jesus' life is like to us, we reject it. And we say, why would we go on a holiday at sea when I have this incredible mud pie? Right? I've been playing in the mud. It seems to be going okay so far. Why would I step into something new? And so it is for many of us where God says, hey, I have this life for you. Yes, there is the saying no to yourself. There's admitting the fallen nature and saying, I don't want to go there anymore. The death of Christ would work in us so that the life of Christ would be manifest out of us. So it's up to you and I to be willing to step out in faith and to say, no, I want more that God has for me. Even if it seems that it could be death in the beginning. Because for some of us, including myself, saying no to ourselves is the scariest possibility on the planet. To think that I could lose my identity, I could lose who I am if Christ asked something of me. To think that I could miss out on something in this life because Christ has something different for me. It can be a very, very scary thing. And yet in these comparisons, there's mortality, which is temporary and transitory, and there is life. And mortality, although created by God and corrupted by man, comes to an end and a disgusting end that it is. And life only gets better and better. And so there's this comparison that's being made here by Paul about, in this case, just this, the putting away of the old, the, the, the losing of the, the old body, and now the inheriting of the new body, and it's swallowed up by life. you got to love that imagery. It just, because it, it, in our world, what kind of imagery do we have for that? You know, if you drink Corona, you'll be super skinny and tan on a beach, right? Because that makes sense. And you'll have completeness of life, right? Even remember, well, some of you guys are too young, but back in the day, remember there were, there were bull, uh, not bulletin boards, but uh, billboards. billboards. And it had the Marlboro Man on them. Remember, he died of cancer, literally. But the, they had the Marlboro Man on them. And, and what is he doing? He's like sitting on a horse, and he's all ruggedly handsome, much like myself. And he's there, and he's got like a cigarette, right? And you look behind him, and it's just, a, it's just this incredible, like, landscape and cows and whatever. And, and, and what, is, what are they trying to portray? If you smoke these cigarettes, you will experience a fullness of life. If you drink Corona, you'll experience a fullness of life. If you watch this film, you'll experience a fullness of life. If you take, you know, all, this, all of our advertisements are all designed to target and, and bring us to a place where we think that will give me vitality, satisfaction, completeness. And Paul is saying, no, it's only found one place. And it's, it's, it's through eternity. And, it's in, and not just, we can find life in this life too, but it will be completed in eternity. So then from there he says, verse 5, he says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is fascinating because Paul says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Now how does that work? And I don't claim to know entirely how it works, but, but if we go back to Adam and Eve again, the in the garden, right, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then you have the tree of life. And God says you cannot eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of no the knowledge of good and evil, it, it seems like, a, I don't know about you, it took me years to kind of figure out like what that even meant. It just seems weird, doesn't it? You're like, wouldn't it be like the bad fruit tree? Like what's the, but it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the idea, and what Satan, I think, uh, in a sense, in his, in his endeavor to deceive, exposes a little bit about what it is. Because he says, when you, Satan says, when you eat that, 
you will be able to decide good and evil for yourself, right? You will be like God. That was, that's, the, that's the thing. And that, it, that's exactly what you see in our society, right? Subjective truth. This is good. This is evil. And so we have this crazy society and the globe that's going on right now because everybody's deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. We don't have, or I should say the world doesn't have ultimate firm truth. They have subjective truth, and that's, that's where it gets us. So when we're looking here at what Paul's uh, uh, talking about, when it, it's kind of wild because he says that he fashioned us for this purpose. God fashioned us for the purpose to have mortal bodies. But we didn't get the, the full effect of mortal body until after sin. Because when, when and it's interesting too, because when Eve ate this, this fruit, when she desired to be able to dictate for herself good and evil, it doesn't say that death entered the world through Eve. It says that death entered the world through Adam. So Eve partakes deceived. She passes to Adam. And the implication is that Adam rebelled, that Eve ate out of deception. Adam ate out of rebellion. Seeing his wife do this, he takes the fruit, he eats it, and now death comes flying into humanity. And I don't know what that would have been like. I think it would have been wild, though. All of a sudden, you go from being innocent, you go from not having really a knowledge of sin or thinking in a sinful way or dealing with those kind of thoughts to instantaneously before you, you and your wife begin to corrupt. Everything around you begins to corrupt. The world is instantly cursed and God comes looking for you and says, where are you, Adam? All this event that it took place. And so people begin to die. People begin to uh, uh, have pain, all the things that come along with that. So somehow, in God's incredible wisdom, knowing that human beings would choose sin, they would choose to rebel against him, they would choose to try to establish their own good and evil for themselves, He's made, I don't know how it worked, but in the fall, God is still able to use these fallen bodies and has fashioned our souls to be part of them in order that this portion of life, this portion of pre-eternity, if you will, or perhaps you might think of it as a, a bubble of time in the midst of eternity, that we live it out and it has a purpose for us. Because we can have a lot of thoughts like, well, why does God have it this way? I don't know if you've ever given God suggestions, but it seems like a popular thing to do. And we say, well, it should have been this way. It should have been that way. Well, you, you shouldn't have us be on earth. Why don't we get saved and just immediately shoot up into heaven? Why, did, you know, why, why do we have to tell the gospel? Why doesn't Jesus just fly around and tell the gospel? You know, all the myriad of things that we could come up with, why? I think it's this. Number one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it represented something besides trying to choose your own destiny. It represented choice, right? Because God is not interested in robots. He didn't create yes people, right? He didn't create people that, just, that were slaves. Jesus even says, I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. You know how you have a friend? They choose to be with you. That's real friendship. If you had a relationship, if, if you came to my house for dinner and you saw my wife with like an ankle chain to the, to the table, right? And then I, when you came in, I'm like, oh, it's so glad to see you. This is my wife, Tam. She's really great. Man, she loves me so much. She never leaves. That would be invalid, wouldn't it? If she never had a choice to leave, I could never know that she truly loved me. The, the, the reality that, they, that she could leave at any time, at any day, and do whatever she wants in this world, but she chooses to stay, it shows something, doesn't it? 
She's crazy. <laughs> no. That she loves me, right? She loves our home. She loves our children. So here's the thing. God creates this choice for humanity. And he says, I know what's good for you. I know what's best for you. We walk in the garden. We hang out. I created botany for you, right? But he says, he says you have choice. Don't take it, but you have it if you want it. And it's no surprise that when we chose against what God had for us that we died. Spiritually, the, the, everything that was good went away except for him. And all of a sudden, this new thing has to become, and there's centuries, and then, and then Abraham shows up, and all that kind of thing. And so today, what is this life about? It's about choice. It's about choosing to walk with Jesus to experience his goodness in this mortality, in this fallen body, in this life. And the more that we choose Christ, the more that we get to experience eternal life on this side. It sounds scary sometimes. It sounds like it wouldn't actually be eternal life sometimes. Sometimes inside of our hearts with our sinful nature, everything inside of us rages and says, no, no, this cannot be. When Christ invites us along and says, no, you'll find life here. Whether it's Peter walking on the water, whether it's when Jesus tells Peter, <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes. When he's talking to John and then, and then Peter says, well, what about me? And he says, well, if I tell John, if I cause John to be alive until I come back, what is that to you, Peter? And by the way, you're going to be crucified. And you're like, oh, womp, womp, womp. You know, like, it's not what I'm trying to hear today. But he just this, this, whole, this, this whole dynamic that even in suffering, even in, with Peter knowing the way he would die, and he was with his wife. And, and the, the recorded last words of Peter are, woman, be strong, as he's crucified upside down to his wife. You know, the fellowship there, the, not woman like one. I mean, it's, it's a different, it's the, the word Jesus uses. It's like a, a term of affection. It doesn't really translate <laughs> into our society. But he says, woman, be strong. So you, you have this, this opportunity for you and I in a fallen, mortal, temporal, transitory state to experience the goodness and the eternality of God in this very life. But we get to choose it, don't we? We get to choose whether we have that life or we don't. First, we get to choose that if we're going to be saved or not, and then we get to choose it as Christians, are we going to let God work in our hearts? Because he's always working, he's always moving, he's always inviting, and it's really up to us if we're going to accept it or not. Are we going to receive that? Are we going to keep eating from the same tree and wondering why it keeps hurting us? Why we feel isolated, why we feel anxious and depressed and lonely when we can be in the midst of a bunch of people that care about us. Continually we choose our own destiny, or we try to, and continually we're left empty. It's the human experience. It's radical. And here's Jesus saying, make the choice. And here Paul is encouraging us saying, this is what lies ahead for us. So it is for this very purpose, God who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So for that purpose of life, for that purpose of experiencing him and having power, it says that he's given us the spirit as a deposit. Now the Greek word for deposit is the first installment. So it's the idea of a down payment, essentially. Now none of us, I think, in our right minds would say, God owes me something. We often say that in our actions and in our anger, but we probably are smart enough to realize that to say out loud that God owes me something seems like a bit of a foolish statement. So we're not saying that. 
But at the same time, God has said, I've entered into a dynamic with you that I've given you my Holy Spirit, and it is the down payment of everything else I have for you. Does that make sense? It's the first deposit of eternity into the mortal. And that takes this soul that, that interfaces with a body and now empowers the soul in the body to walk in a way that honors God, something we didn't have before. Not when, before we were saved, I should say. So there's an incredible reality that he gives us that, that we have this Holy Spirit as a deposit, and he says it's guaranteeing what is to come. Now, I want to talk for a second about this idea that we groan, and a little bit about how do we deal with the difficulties of this life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is kind of finishing up his treatise on salvation and how it works. Uh, you got to love chapter 7. Well, I mean, we can glance at 7 really quick because there's this great verse. In chapter 7, Paul is talking about his personal Christian experience. We know that because the beginning of chapter 7, he says, we and my brothers and us and all these things. And then at about verse, uh, what is it, 11 or so, I can't remember, 13, he starts to say, I, I this, I that. So as we get to chapter, actually maybe it's verse 14, when we get to verse 19, he says this, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I know we've talked about this recently, but keep, I keep on doing in the NIV, it's, it's one word in the Greek, it's prazo. So it would literally read like this, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I practice. It is my practice that I do this. I'm not justifying sin, and neither is he. He goes there in verse 20. He says, Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that lives in me that does it. Now this is interesting, because Paul says, and, and this is part of a bigger thought, so we're kind of breaking into it, so forgive me for that. But Paul makes this point, and he says, This is my experience as a Christian. I want to do good. In, in, earlier on, he's going to say, I agree with the law. That when the law says that these things are sin, I agree with that. But then I still don't do it. And then he comes to this place and he says, the good that I want to do, like the godliness, the righteousness, the thing that God calls me to do that I want to do, I don't do that. He says, in fact, I find myself practicing what I don't want to do. What an encouraging statement, honestly, to know that we're in good company. That if we're struggling with sin, if we're having difficulty, one, that there's a remedy, and we'll get to that, but two, that this is it's not an obscure experience. It's not, you're not the only one. That, that because of our fallen nature, we're tempted to sin. We like to sin to some extent. And so Paul is making the point. He goes on there. He says, look, if I do what I don't want to do, it is not, no longer I who do it. He's not saying I am not responsible for my sin. What he's saying here is that is not who I am anymore. And that, and that idea is actually replicated in virtually every single letter that he writes. He always writes in the way where he says, like in Galatians 5, where he says, don't you know that people that do all these things, that they won't inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, and such were some of you. But he's saying it in the venue of you should repent from sin. Over and over again, Paul says the same message. You're not that person anymore. That's the mortal in you. That's the old nature in you. 
That's who you used to be. So he says, when a person sins, he says, that's not the new creation in Christ. That's the old you. It's not you anymore. Again, that's not to separate responsibility. You just go, well, when I sin, it's not actually me, so let's get this on. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that you have to understand it's an incredibly encouraging idea that God doesn't view you as that person anymore, even if you're sinning. Does it destroy things? 100%. If I sin, it will destroy, right? If I don't bear in my Christian life the death of Jesus then it will immediately affect those around me. If I decide to leave a, live a greedy life and my kids need stuff, but I say, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go out and buy a newer, better, fancy mower. Sorry about your luck, right? If I go do that and I, and I, just, and I decide not to engage in the death of Jesus, then people will suffer around me, won't they? And if I do that habitually, that will develop something in my soul, won't it? It will cause me to grow to be a bitter, greedy, miserable person, won't it? Because greed destroys us. Covetousness destroys us inside. But if I bear the life of Jesus, all of a sudden, you know what? I can have a less nicer mower, and I can still give my kids food, which is the priority, right? So no no one's saying here that sin won't have an effect. And in fact, we'll talk about in a second, he's going to say that we stand before Christ. But the point is that when we do sin, we're acting like who we used to be, and we're not acting like who we actually are in Christ. Does that make sense? So then he goes on from there, and it gets, uh, we're going to, verse 21, he says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. You know, a lot of people have really encouraged, you ever heard the term life verse? Right? And it typically is someone's, it's a verse that's part of a scripture that really ministers to someone over the course of their life at different times. And I'm not minimizing that. But it's usually something like, I know the plans I have for you or whatever. This is mine. This is mine. Romans 7.21. Even when I want to do good, evil's just right there. You know, I can have the purest intention sometime and just be like, man, I'm just so glad to be here. Jesus is so good. And I'm pretty great too. You know? Somehow, like, pride will sneak in there, you know, whatever it is. Or, or like, well, I'm so thankful for this new mower. I bet there's a better one out there somewhere. I bet there's, like, the eternal mower of the ages. And I could, you know, it's just crazy. It's crazy how you can have the most purest of intentions. And somehow evil is present with you. Kind of reminds me of Cain a little bit. Different context. But where God tells Cain, he says, he says be careful. Sin is lying at the door. It's waiting. And it's always there. That old nature is always there waiting to devour us. But at the same time, that's not who we are. It's not who we are anymore. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to go in and talk about all these incredible things that are happening for our sake. For time, we won't read it all. But he says there in verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who, have the, who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, referencing the same thing. He goes on from there. So the first thing he says, he goes, creation is groaning. We're groaning. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So you have creation groaning. You have us groaning. 
You have the Holy Spirit groaning. You have the Holy Spirit praying for us, he goes on to say, verse 27. And he who searches out the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I don't know entirely how prayer works. I am pretty sure that prayer is significantly more for us than it is for God. I really don't think that when we pray and we're like, Lord, can you please work this out in my life, that somehow God is like, oh, I got a little busy, I didn't see that. We'll get to that. I really think it's just an acknowledgement for us, a confession of weakness, a confession of need, which I think is really good for us to be able to say, I need help. I need God to work in my heart. I need God to do this. But it seems like if anybody's prayers are immediately going to be answered, it would be the Holy Spirit. And so he tells us that the Holy Spirit is praying God's will for you. That's wild. Creation is for you. in its corrupted state, as a, obviously we're not saying trees have personalities or something, but, but he says that creation is groaning, groaning. He says that you're groaning. He says the Holy Spirit is groaning. Then he's going to go from there and he says this, verse 28, and we know that in all these things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not only that, but he says this. He says God is able, no matter what happens in a person's life, He is able to work it out to get something good from it. But there's a caveat. It's told us to love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Why is that caveat? Because if if you're not saved, if you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't received forgiveness, right? If those are not things that you have, and and, and even if you've received those, if you don't love Christ or have a love for him of some sort, the reason he says he, he doesn't work all things together for good for you is that he can't. We squelch his power. When God comes to us as Christians and says, I have this thing for you. You can trust me in this. You can walk with me in this. Whether you cause it or someone else, God says, I can heal that. I can work in that. And when we say, no. No, I'm not going to let you touch that in my life. No, I'm not going to let you heal that in my life. I'm upset because you allowed this, or I'm upset because they did that, or I'm upset because I did this, whatever, whatever the context is, the way that we live, then God says, I can't work there. It reminds me of when Jesus comes to his hometown. What's the commentary about Jesus' life when he comes to hometown? He says he could not do many miracles there because they, they looked at him as the son of a carpenter. They didn't believe him. A lack of trust and faith in our lives halts the power of God in our lives. An open heart to whatever it says, to a prayer and an open heart. Even a prayer that just says, I love the prayer of the man of the demon-possessed son. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe that you could, you could change this and work this for good, but I don't want it because I think it'll hurt too much. Or I don't want to give up my anger because I feel like you wronged me. I don't want to give up. Whatever it is, it's incredible what becomes part of our identity, part of our souls when we insist on sin in our lives. And that's, it, that's what... It stops that. But to the person who's just willing to say, you know what, I'm thankful for my salvation. I really don't want to go through suffering, but if you can do something good out of this, I'll take it. And I need it. I may go kicking and screaming, and I may do a lot of crying, but I'm in. He says, that person, no matter what happens to that person, no matter what that person does, and we're not saying that we sin, that grace may abound. We're not saying that. We're not saying we do bad things to try to get good to come of it. That's wrong. Paul addressed that. But we are saying that no matter what does occur, that God is able to use it for good. Why is this important? Because Paul's making the statement to the person that is saved, everything can, in in context here, everything will work out for your benefit. 
Not that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but that no matter what does happen to you, it'll benefit you. That God is so sovereign, so big, so powerful, that he's able to take any difficulty for those that love him, for those who are walking with him, for those who are called, and make it for their better. So it's it's this incredible dynamic that's being being, um, given to us where, where we're groaning. He goes on for them, and he tells us why it works. In verse 29, he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be to conform to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn excuse me, among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's the deal. God foreknew. Now, this is an interesting word. Foreknowledge is the idea. It's like... Uh, Protonasia, and it's the idea that before everything, God knew. But not just like he knew about, but literally the idea of God intrinsically, deeply knew. Does that make sense? So before anybody was ever born, before the world was ever created, God had foreknowledge of that. And this can be a little bit of a, different, a difficult concept. He knew everyone who would be created. He knew every event. He knew everything that would ever take place. Foreknowledge is not predestination. It's foreknowledge. We just can't really identify that because we really don't have foreknowledge in a true sense. We can make some pretty accurate guesses, things that you could say to yourself, if I, uh, if I get a shot, it's going to hurt, right? That's about as, as big as we can get. But you could get a shot like right here, and it doesn't hurt, right? So it's one of those things where we can kind of understand foreknowledge, but we don't experience foreknowledge in its f- full capacity. Does that make sense? So God foreknew, who would he foreknew? Well, he foreknew who would be a believer. He foreknew who would choose him. This is really important. Because the, the people that are, are, are predestined, they're people that he foreknew. So God foreknew who would choose him, and to anyone who chose him, he gave them a destiny. So it's not saying that God predestined who would get saved. It's saying that everyone who chose and did get saved, that person got a destiny. And it's to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is your destiny if you're in a believer in Jesus. It just boils down to how much will you let God do on this side of eternity and how much will be done at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ when we stand before him and those things, those pieces of our soul that we made and, and kept mortal, in other words, the pieces of our soul that we insisted on, uh, the greed, we insisted on places of unbelief. When we stand before Christ, those will be addressed and they'll be removed from us. That mortality will be torn away from immortality. And it says it'll be done by fire. But it says that person will be saved. He goes on and he just makes the point. He says, look, the people that he predestined based on foreknowledge, he called them. Those people got a call. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 22 in the, in the um, uh, parable of the, the kingdom where they go out and they invite everybody and, and uh, nobody comes. And so then they invite everybody from the highways and byways. And the guy sneaks in without a, he does not wearing his, his wedding garment. And the, the feast master says, hey, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And uh, he's just kind of speechless. And Jesus makes a point. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. So this is not a reference to the idea that God only calls people that are predestined. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that people that have a response, there's too many places where you have whoever to say that there's not a legitimate offer of salvation to every person on the planet. 
So what's being said here is realistically the person that decides to choose God is given a destiny through Christ and that destiny is to be like Christ and it's to be a co-heir with Christ. And so those people are called, they're justified. Now interesting, these are all past tense things. Justification, glorification, being called. It's interesting. It's almost like God knew everybody that would choose him and then he worked in that venue and now all of a sudden he's given all those people a destiny. And, and, and all this whole thing is that you have everything going for you as a believer in Jesus. Everything. God is withholding no power, no calling, no spirit. We are the only ones that stop that. Real quick, we'll finish this up. He ends with this in verse 6. He says, therefore, we are always confident. Therefore, what? Because we have the Holy Spirit and God's doing this great work. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. So Paul, is, he's pointing out this fact that you and I do not experience God in the fullness that we will. Right? While we're present in the Lord, we are absent, or excuse me, present in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We live in a, in a dimension where God is working and moving, but we're not with him in the way we will be. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So he sums this up, and, and, and he, he comes to this place where he says, because of everything that's happening, because of this reality that God has in our lives, because it's better to be with him, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're in the body or away from it, whether we're here or we're in eternity. Our goal is to please God. And so the question that's left has to be, is that my goal? Is that your goal? Do I wake up in the morning and think to myself, I want to please God today? Or do I wake up in the morning and think to myself, God's kind of lame, and his stuff is hard, so I don't really want to please him. I want to please myself. It's way easier to please ourselves in some respects, right? Because it just comes naturally, because we're mortal and we're fleshly. So we're called to instead look to the eternal, as we, he ends for chapter 4, right? We don't look at those things that are temporal, uh, the seen, because it's temporal. We look at the eternal. And so he, he makes the point, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is, this is not the great white throne judgment. The, it's, it's the Bema seat, or Bema seat, however you want to pronounce it. But it's, a, it's the same word that was used for the Olympic podium in the Greek games. That's what the Bema seat judgment is. And so the idea for the Christian is twofold. One, we've referenced the 1 Corinthians 3 idea that we will stand before Christ and what we did with our life, if, it, we, if we sowed to the temporal, it'll be burnt away. If we, sold, if we sowed, excuse me, to the eternal, then that will remain. And so what he says here is that, this, that all of us, people who are wrestling with life and just trying to live for Christ, find our victory in Christ, encourage one another, you know, be involved in the kingdom of God. He says, as that happens in our life, that that will develop essentially eternity. We will change. We will be changed, right? But then when we stand before God at his judgment seat, we will receive what is due us. And there will be glory for those things that we yielded to him and in eternality and life overtook mortality. And there will be loss 
What do you mean by loss? It will be taken from us. If my whole life was predicated on making sure I was comfortable and I became vastly self-centered, when I stand before Christ as a Christian, that cannot enter eternity because it is mortal. And out of mercy, although it will be painful, God says he will tear that from my soul by fire and, I will be ent- and I'll enter into heaven. So the question is, how much will we tear away ourselves by the power of the Spirit? And how much will we wait and let God tear away? How much fruit will we have and be a blessing to those around us and be, be a, a, a stalwart in God's kingdom for comfort and care? And how much will we preserve ourselves only to have it stripped from us later? That's what it comes down to. We don't want to spend our lives on ourselves. We don't want to spend our lives on making sure that we're comfortable. We don't want to spend our lives on making sure that we're the most taken care of. We want to spend our lives doing whatever good works God has foreordained for us. He says there in Ephesians chapter 2. That what is it that he has for us? And that could be another sermon. But God has great things for each of us. And we want to walk in those. And to not walk in those, it's, it's not going to be good. It won't be good in this life. And it'll be worse in the next or at least in the transition, I suppose, to the next. So anyway, we have the communion here today. We're going to have a couple songs. And uh, I just encourage you, uh, it's an opportunity. It says uh, there in 1 Corinthians 11, to remember him until he comes. And he says, in that last supper, he gets the guys together and he says, hey, I, I want you to eat this bread. And when you do, I want you to remember me. Remember the body that was given. To remember that he came here, bore the likeness of sinful flesh, went to Calvary, and was crucified on our behalf. And then he says, in that that crucifixion, he wants us to remember his blood. So the old covenant was in the blood of bulls and goats, right? A red heifer, some pigeons, a lot of different animal sacrifices. But he says, you know what? This is the blood I want you to remember, the blood that created a new covenant. Not an old covenant that was based on wrath and obedience, but a new covenant that was based on faith and purchasing by Christ. And so you and I have a, a tremendous opportunity to sing to him, to consider him, and to remember him. And he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it's an opportunity to say, Lord, you're coming back for me. And I encourage you today, if, if, one, if you don't know Christ, cry out to him. Receive Christ as your Savior. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to give you life because you need it. And if you do know Christ and you feel stuck, I encourage you, call out to him. Don't continue. Let none of us continue in our, in our own estimation of good and evil. But let's listen to what God says is good and evil. And let's walk in that. And if you feel stuck like you can't get out of something, we'd love to pray with you. But this is just an opportunity to review those things in your mind, pray about those things. And then Paul, the, the Paul says, hey, then eat. The emphasis is on do business with God and then partake and remember him. The emphasis isn't on exclusion or something like that. Uh, but there is warning. So, the Lord bless you guys. That felt like a really long sermon. I'm sorry if that was too long. But maybe it's just the heat. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. God loves you. He's got great things for you. And, uh, man, let's just be on a city on a hill. Huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, Lord, for the promises. Lord, we thank you for our trials and our travails. We don't like them. But we thank you for them. Thank you that you want to form in us the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want to get love in our hearts? Do you want to get joy and peace and faithfulness, self-control? All those, 
all that sevenfold fruit or whatever it is. Lord, we, we just ask that you would work that out in our hearts and that you would continue to do great things, continue to draw us. Forgive us, Lord, where we have insisted on our knowledge of good and evil, insisted on what we say is right. And Lord, instead, let's yield to you. Or may we choose to yield to you. May you work on us. May our lives be like David. May we be dried up like pot shards when we rebel against you. And Lord, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. Thanks for the communion and the opportunity to remember you. We pray for a blessed time of worship and spirit and truth and that you'd be exalted in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.